This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Delancey. The internet's potential to perform political miracles has been a source of both hope and disappointment for many grassroots movements. We remember that the Bernie Sanders campaign tried to master the meme to mobilize a young, eager audience. Equally, we ascribe Trump's electoral victory in 2016 to seemingly leaderless internet misinformation. Many of such events have been the subject of academic study, but research is often slow to keep up with the rapidly changing scene. Internet cultures are constantly evolving, and yet they evade theory. If a researcher tracing the role of the meme to the politicization and radicalization of online communities struggles to keep up, what hope does an artist have? Today, I'm speaking with Joshua Citarella, who is an artist and the author of Politogram and the Post-Left. His practice is at points that of a content creator, at others of an ethnographer, sometimes of a benevolent online edgelord. Citarella's practice starts with the understanding that it is impossible to predict what the next generation of meme posters will be interested in, and whether the memes will reach beyond the tiny echo chambers. What is clear is that mainstream politics, particularly the politics of the left, remains afraid of these unruly communities that can just as easily turn to their dark corners of the demonized alt-right as they are to carry the flag for Bernie. Politogram on the post-left is just one of multiple projects that Citarella has released through his self-publishing channels and directly to his supporters. Despite this unsanctioned mode of production, his and his community's productions appear to reach the kind of audiences that would make some academic publishers green with envy. Joshua remains active in the art world too. At the end of this episode, I'll include the audio track from one of his recent video works, published by Dis. I think this relates to the controversial essay, How to Plant a Meme, that we discuss in the interview, so do stay tuned to the very end. As ever, you'll find links to many of the things we discuss in the episode notes. Joshua, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to meet you. Right, well... Listeners who have been tuned in properly will recall that only a week ago I interviewed Mike Watson and we talked about memes quite a bit. And today 
I think we're going to repeat some of this, these tracks, but in a very different perspective and in a completely new level of detail. Joshua, I want to find out first about who it is that you are. You're not an academic. I think that, that will be quite clear to our audience within a moment. <laughs> but are you an artist? Are you a researcher? How, why are we talking? Yeah, it's funny. There's not, um, there's not another person who does this job. Um, so maybe I can just tell you my background. I'll tell you what Go it is it. that I do now. And then together we can figure out what the appropriate label for that thing is. <laughs> uh, I guess I studied art. I went to the School of Visual Arts. I studied photography, graduated in 2010. I've uh, taught at SVA in New York. I've taught at RISD. I've been an outside advisor for various uh, undergraduate and graduate programs. Um, I've shown in galleries and museums for probably 10 years now. So uh, I consider myself an artist, but I guess looking back, um, my studio practice has kind of dissolved or evaporated, transformed into this content stream where now I make podcasts and Twitch streams and I publish articles and PDFs. And uh, I've spent probably the last, I want to say, five years writing about radical online Gen Z politics, uh, very extremely online Gen Z politics, mm -hmm. not red versus blue Democrats and Republicans, but anarcho-primitivists versus transhumanists and pan-constitutional monarchists versus uh, Juche, anarcho-accelerationist, libertarian Whatever, okay, whatever. We might, we might have to. We might have to slow down already. There's a, there's a lot. <laughs> this. Well, this is. It's the nicheification is infinite. On the long tail of internet culture, there is an infinite number of genres and political ideologies, and I spent the last few years studying those mm. things. Well, let's look with art for a little moment. I mean, I'm I'm looking at the video feed. There's no art behind you. Uh, the, the wall is perfectly white and blank. But there was a moment in in the kind of gallery and museum practice that you might have been part of, in which we talked about. Post-internet art. Now, I, I appreciate this is a very cringe-worthy term by now, but <laughs> could you maybe maybe talk about your your belonging into in that that world and how it is that you've moved yourself online with with your interests? Absolutely. What, what, what brought you to the, to that to that kind of aesthetic rift? Broadly speaking, I was part of a, a peer group, uh, a mini generation of artists that lasted just a very very few years in hindsight, called uh, post-internet art. A lot of these people came up on Tumblr and on Facebook and were essentially the early adopters of social media platforms and used that to bootstrap a art career either to institutional success or market success. And it also, I think, was the most formative thing in my education, having these reading groups that I had already graduated at that point. So I was making art and I had a set of interests that I, I really cared about, but through these successive reading groups spanning probably 10 years in New York City at the intersection of art and tech, um, I learned things that were really relevant and were different than what I'd been taught in school. And I, I attribute my analysis to meme culture in general being informed by those reading groups. So I really think it was the uh, the post-school activities and peer groups that like informed my ideas, what I write now and, and what I look at. Mm, gosh, I mean, you wouldn't be the first um, art school graduate to realize that art school doesn't necessarily prepare you for the real world, whatever the real world Not is. Not at all. <laughs> and actually, the, the real world is part of my, my next question, because the book we're talking about is called Politogram and the Post-Left. And I think we're going to have to define both of these terms. Politogram I guess it's sort of easy. We're talking about the portmanteau of politics and Instagram. 
but there's a little bit more to it. And I'm particularly interested in how whatever politogram is relates to politics of the real world. You've already said that you're not interested in the kind of left versus right, but I think I think it's important to capture as much as it is possible at this stage the relationship of the meme sphere and those kind of cultures that you already referred to 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 the politics and the cultural or polar politics of the people who, who don't don't touch these spheres. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I'm going to describe it in maybe two eras, which is how Politogram existed when I wrote the book, which was published originally in October of 2018. So it's been quite a while. And now uh, we are recording this in, what is it, May of 2022. So that's a, a lifetime of internet <laughs> history. Uh, so when I wrote the book, Politogram, I would broadly describe it as uh, a community of Gen Z teens who posted outrageous, uh, sometimes insightful memes and essays and um, got up to trolling and uh, had like very active discords and would pursue their own education through sharing PDFs and things like this. Um, that age group was generally 12 to 17. It was unbelievably young. Hmm. It was almost entirely undocumented. Uh, so I, I bore witness to a level of young people getting radicalized or politicized that was a, a pretty unique window in internet culture, in just how platforms operated, but also in American history and, and global history. Hmm. Um, Politogram now is quite different. People are spread out. Uh, obviously, content creators, a lot of people have been deplatformed. This is happening all the time. Um, and it is much, much more, I want to say, sanitized than it hmm. was. Um, so uh, I mean that literally in that in the years following the publication of that PDF, a lot of people around age 15, teenagers who are too young to drive but are involved in terrorist organizations, uh, a lot of people got arrested. <laughs> you know, those <laughs> those were headlines uh, across uh, many of them in Europe, actually, uh, uh, just relatively compared to the U.S. But um, the Overton window has also shrank proportionately mm. in that you are less likely to find someone who has a totally made up ideology that we would call yeah. ideologies, which is this A-B pairing, this combinatory process of putting together um, a prefix and a suffix like monarcho-syndicalism, for example, mm. uh, supporting the, <laughs> the hereditary monarch, <laughs> but also uh, a, a level of like syndicalist uh, organization at the place of work. Uh, there, there was these things that were really funny and unique to internet culture that would mm. uh, uh, flourish and crop up in the early politogram. And now it just feels a little bit, a little bit different. People have, you know, very specific ideologies but maybe not uh, in the same level of like extreme and, and self-parody that they were before. Yeah, yeah, it feels like, it feels like two different periods. Mm, so that's interesting. You're already describing a process in which, I don't know whether sanitization is a word I would have used, of course, having not spent the thousands of hours online that you have in, in, <laughs> in, the, same, in the same environment. But I wonder whether we are not already seeing some kind of a commercial capture of all these places of discourse. Um, you know, there's a, there's a plenty of ideological um, conversation and discourse online. Maybe it just happens to be about something else. But I, I want to dwell a little bit, a bit for at, at something that you remarked on a moment ago, which is that the super young age of the actors involved in what you term the politogram 
around, I guess, 2016, we were at the point of um, Trump's election, where, of course, for so many people, supposedly the world turns upside down. What does, what does radicalization mean in this context? Like, how do you radicalize someone who doesn't mm. yet have a political consciousness and, and to what feasible right. end? And I guess underneath that, there's a question of what, what kind of aims this meme culture might have had. You know, what, what do you do? You, you, you hang out at the mall, you've posted all your memes, and you're <laughs> shitposting. What are you being radicals in, into? For what mission? Right, right. Yeah, there's, um, let me do these uh, one at a time, because this is this part is really important. So there's, mm-hmm. there's radical politics, and there's extremist politics. Sometimes it's helpful to have a rhetorical distinction between those things. Um, extremist politics is uh, violence and terrorism, which is indefensible and uh, should not be part of uh, political discourse in any civilized society. Then there's radical politics, which Radical politics now was common sense politics in the 1970s. So yeah. it's important to to spread a gradation uh, on these things. And very often there will be establishment figures that use the um, the the fuzzy edges of those words to lump in the extremes uh, with the radicals, and they will discredit uh, you know things that would otherwise be generally popular and beneficial to society at large. Uh, okay. So the, the other question is a um, uh, point very well taken that there's a lot of kids who think they're really <laughs> radical and it ends up that, uh, well, they're just hanging out at the mall and they're posting or whatever. Maybe they're not at the mall now, but they're, um, they're, they're hanging out in the, <laughs> you know, uh, their mom's basement, for example, which I streamed from for about a year, maybe a year and a half. Um, so <laughs> thank you. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was an interesting moment for the personal brand. Uh, in the last few years, in terms of this process of politicization and radicalization, there's a diagram that many people have probably seen now, um, which is uh, sometimes called the funnel, where you have a, a broad net of political messaging that is then slowly refined to a more mm. narrow audience and a more narrow audience that gets increasingly radical and, and extreme. So um, one could imagine that a political message that reached, uh, say, a, a million people could then get a thousand that were really, that really meant it were really dedicated. And um, when things go viral, that process, that kind of conversion rate, the click-through rate in terms mm-hmm. of advertising, um, it's funny, the funnel is used in both advertising and counterterrorism. Yeah. I was two. thinking about advertising as you were saying this. <laughs> exactly. Frankly, yeah. No, no, they literally draw the same mm. diagrams yeah. of click-through rates and conversion rates. And, mm. and yeah, so um, most people who are exposed to this kind of stuff think it's funny, ironic, entertaining, and they do more or less hanging out at the mall as maybe yeah. our generation would, but for them it's posting on social media. But then there is a small percentage of people who really, really do get into it. And part of the work I've done in the last few years is to interview people um, who have gone from basically looking at memes and reading PDFs and watching YouTube videos into joining political organizations and are now Mm. parts of protests, parts of uh, street demonstrations, parts of political organizations where they are taking on the um, they're they're taking the baton from a group that kind of petered out in the 1990s and it's a bunch of uh, Mm. 70 year olds on zoom who are now really surprised that there's a bunch of like 16, 17 year olds in their meetings who are very excited about what's going on and want to hear about, um, you know, left communism and whatever. So there's a a real gradation in the, the severity of this messaging and how activated people get. So I absolutely agree that most people 
when they get exposed to radical stuff, they kind of don't do much about it. But then there is a portion of it that are, are really influential online and are very dedicated to it. Right. So I'm, I'm already split a little bit trying to follow you because we, we talked about this kind of super, super concentrated, super niche research, super niche type of activity. But actually, at the same time, we're talking about a set of political techniques, you know, the online culture, meme sphere, as influenceable as it is. And as much as it bears a relationship with mainstream commercial advertising, it also has this potentially massive, massive reach. And I guess it is super interesting to see. And what I imagine, what I understand you've been, you've been doing is to try to find ways to influence these political machinations without necessarily going the whole Cambridge analytical route of, of, of subverting, going through Facebook advertising algorithms. I think maybe to try to understand who we're trying to talk to and and what it is that we might be trying to talk to them about, it would be good to undo a little bit your second bit of your title, which is the post-left. Now, again, we're talking in, in May 2022. I've had a bit of a political awakening in the last couple of years, which which has made me much more receptive to to all sorts of terms with the word post stuck in front of it. But what, for the purposes of the kind of analysis that you think is relevant now? What, what could the post-left have been in 2018? What is it now? And, and what do we do with, with that concept? It's, yeah, that's a, that's a great question because it is such a, it really became such a term that I was not, uh, I didn't anticipate it. So uh, as I mentioned before, there's these, you know, various eras of politogram, but certainly in the beginning, what post-left meant then and what it was, in my understanding, historically associated with, I mean, historically among a small group of experts, was that the post-left meant Luddism, it meant anarcho-primitivism, it meant anti-civilization, it meant rejecting industrial society. So you might think of characters all the way from John Zerzan to Kevin Tucker Mm -hmm. to Derek Jensen up to Ted Kaczynski or anybody, that they were post-left in that their understanding of left-wing politics was that it was essentially the countervailing force that maintained capitalism. I should mention that I disagree with this analysis, but I'm just presenting <laughs> their their version of it. And so they would understand that um, if you just went hands off, that capitalism would self-destruct and that yeah. uh, civilization would self-destruct and that we shouldn't attempt to save it um, and that we should return to something like a a neo-band society of mm. hunter-gatherers living off the abundance of the land and, and things like this. Um, now, post-left means something very different, which I think, if I broadly had to summarize it, would be people who come from a, a lineage of organization or left intellectualism who are now very skeptical of like woke politics mm-hmm. and um, do not fit comfortably into the William F. Buckley version of the right because they have uh, pretty strong criticisms of the free market, but they're also not culturally progressive in every instance. Mm -hmm. So that that has kind of, I think, now shifted what the consensus definition of post-left is. But when I first wrote about it in 2018, it meant like rejecting industrial society and returning to like, yeah, (laughs) living off of the land. (laughs) I think one of the reasons that that online cultures like the ones that you are interested in are eschewed by mainstream academia is that it becomes very difficult for researchers or observers or even often, I would argue, participants to figure out which version of the politics they're really participating in. And Mm. there's this kind of assumption, which 
I think one can do, one can make almost on an aesthetic level, that whenever whenever meme culture develops into a, a level of irony and absurdity, and that's the, the thing that we really mean by shit shit posting, it becomes very difficult to tell whether it pertains to the left or to the right. And I'm pretty sure that's that's something that you've had to deal with as a, as a description of your practice or an interrogation of your practice. But just to give you a kind of potent and maybe an understudied example, but when you talk about anarcho-primitivism and this kind of idea of returning to hunter-gatherer mm-hmm. societies, the thing that comes to mind to most people who have been looking at alternatives to mainstream politics, I mean, the the the, the, phrase, the person that comes to mind is Bronze Age pervert, where we, we're not really looking to the left in, by any by any possible means. That that's something that I've, I'm kind of troubled by in in how how we develop approaches to even studying online cultures, and I guess it also ties into the question of radicalization. And maybe if I can go into the next question, is like where you see your intervention into all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um, near infinite slippage with the terms and the subcultures, and that's actually that's kind of how they all thrive, right? Because they're competing over the definitions of certain words and they'll literally be competing over who, which faction owns a hashtag because that is, again, creating a very effective uh, Mm -hmm. advertising funnel to bring in new followers and new recruits to their ideology. Um, They'll also compete over symbols, which we saw a lot, where this is, I think, you know, people from our background who are involved in art, that uh, this is somewhere that artists should be really involved in shaping the discourse because mm-hmm. you're having a, a debate between political factions over what an image means. That's like extraordinary. That's so interesting. I think academia has a problem of, um, there's a reason why institutions move slowly. And mm-hmm. these movements, if you started a PhD to write about it, by the time you finish the program, the movement may disappear <laughs> or it would be something else. Well, I guess your, your, your book is, is partly victim of that as well, as you acknowledged. Yeah. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote it um, and and I thought there would be a lot more. I thought, I thought this would be like a genre of like, just, mm. you know, this meme stuff is so interesting. And yeah, I don't know. I, I just expected to not have to do this for so many years after, but <laughs> here I am. Um, okay, but there's another part of the question of um, not being sure what side you're participating on. I think the indeterminacy is is part of it. And um, yeah, and, and plotting those routes where say, for example, somebody gets into uh, what would be a reasonable pathway through this, that like, they're really interested in anarcho-primitivism and then they get into Bronze Age pervert at some point later, a a few years later, um, those things are really interesting to me, how someone Mm -hmm. can be acculturated or educated or whatever word. Um, but they start at one, one position, which we would broadly construe as the right or on the left. And then at some point they cross over and it's like, what are the pathways between those things? That mapping of the networks and mapping of political ideologies is very fascinating to me. So a book of yours that I, I haven't actually seen, but I've seen a cover and admired the cover of um, called 20 Interviews, where I think he actually went and interviewed a lot of these key meme makers. I'd like to ask you about I mean, how, how you went about trying to figure out what, what it is that the meme creators you spoke to actually believe in. Like, At what point mm. do, you, do you subject the statements and the ideas, which I imagine are not always expressed in the most kind of sociologically robust terms? How do you go about... Fact checking what it is that they try to propose. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. There's um, there's a whole gamut, and let's say, for example, if you were going to approach 
an ethnography of like meme posters on Instagram who have political leanings. You could have, you would have a book that's like, I mean, it would be the fucking encyclopedia. <laughs> it would be so extensive. Uh, so I chose to interview 20 people from the, I, uh, the right, left, up, down, and sideways all across the political yeah. spectrum. So I tried to get a broad cross section of the groups and I gave them pretty much the same interview format, which mm-hmm. is pretty lengthy. Um, and I asked them to take a few multiple choice ta- uh, mm-hmm. multiple choice questions that are from the political compass test, but also eight values and politiscales and a number of these. Imagine them like a har- what Harry Potter character quiz are you? Like, are you a uh, which Sex in the City character are you? But then it spits out a political ideology at the end. It's yeah. it's essentially that for people who are not familiar. So. Um, the book also includes people who have varying degrees of political commitment. So there's some of them who are members of, say, for example, a communist organization. And then there's other people who are on the early side of this funnel who are, you know, 15 years old and kind of like the shitposting quality of like a Pepe type of a meme. Uh, but then there's other people who, since the publication of that book, have now gone on to become members of political organizations. So they're they're kind of they were in the middle of that process mm-hmm. and they were becoming politically activated. So um, I think this is just in hindsight. I don't know if I fully understood the what I was doing at the time, but to get that level of access to people is actually very, very rare. And I think the only reason I was able to do that was because I was an artist and not a journalist. And I wasn't really, I mean, I was a content creator, but I had like 1500 mm-hmm. listeners on a podcast. So it was a very small thing in the very beginning of the project. But generally, I think people in this space are extremely distrustful of yeah. academics and uh, journalists and anybody who's an outsider. So maybe a testament of just how much time I've spent ruining my brain in the gutters of the internet is that these people will talk to me and be very candid about you know what they're thinking and how their their ideas and worldview are transforming. Well, you're halfway halfway through a PhD by by this point. You've you've got your data. <laughs> But actually, look, you've, you've just outed yourself again as an artist. And I think I, I that, that's a good way to ask you about two things. One of them is maybe to, to get you to pin your colors to the mass a little bit of your own politics and your own political aspirations, which I, I imagine is, is an easier question than, than some of the others. But second, it's to do with your relationship with the art world and its aesthetic means. So the way I've understood what it is that you're doing is that you having used your privilege as an artist, you've gained access to certain types of spaces and you are performing something that the art world would struggle to necessarily understand as an artistic practice. But actually, as you were describing your, your participation in online forums and so on, actually, I was wondering whether, whether it isn't to a certain extent you know, a social practice, what we, what we mm. see artists kind of routinely doing, intervening in communities quite often for the benefit of a sponsor or an aim that is dictated by a foundation or by whatever values a commissioning organization, a museum or so, brings with it. But I wonder whether there isn't a way of thinking about what you do that's somehow parallel. And that's not to diminish what you do, because I mean, anyone who has listened to me for a while knows that that I have quite a lot of critique for social practice. <laughs> but the question rather is to, to do with where that leaves you vis-a-vis the rest of the art world. Because you, you're doing things that are kind of no longer really easily digestible by the art world. And maybe, maybe that doesn't matter to you anymore at all. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, 
Well, let, let's do let's do these one at a time, and then maybe I'll uh, I'll, I'll do the ideology reveal uh, at the end. But let's talk about <laughs> the art world uh, first. Um, no, this is this is super interesting, and this was I think one of the reasons why I I wanted to talk to you because I think in this process I have learned a lot about the role that art plays in society, and and that has been shifting a lot. I guess mm. since before I was alive, even, but it, now it is something that is really ramped up, and the severity has increased uh, quite a bit. So I think the stuff that I'm doing is I kind of just consider myself as like a weird creative guy who um, likes to do projects and gets interested in things, and mm -hmm. I don't have a like deep reverence for the canon of art. I mean, like I respect it and I enjoy it, but. There's some people who idolize the canon and think of themselves as being in a very specific lineage of artistic practice and a certain mode of color field painting or, or what have you. And I, I don't necessarily identify with that. I, mm -hmm. I feel like um, the ideal conditions for me would be to live in a society that had such abundance that I could more or less drop out of the workforce. I could kind of uh, ha have a part-time job and just have a bunch of decommodified time to pursue my weird creative projects. And that would be ideal. Um, so uh, it's been very interesting to me how my involvement with art and my involvement with institutions has given me the credibility to make public statements about how people get politicized. And it's just a very unique period that we're in. Art is the, the professional field that doesn't abide by the standards and disciplines of any other field. So if I was mm -hmm. purely an academic or purely a journalist, I kind of wouldn't be able to do all the things that I, I do. All of that being said, we're, we, we're now in a period of historical development and uh, art and cultural institutions being uh, you know, folded into polite and elite society in such a way that it's completely <laughs> professionalized. Uh, right. And I'm you know, primarily crowdfunded. I've built a practice and a content stream on Patreon. There's a handful of artists that came from post-internet that have been able to make that leap. There's essentially yeah. Josh, there's New Models, there's Brad Trammell, there's Interdependence, but all of these people were broadly, you know, uh, in that post-internet generation who then made a leap to platforms and out of the institution. Like I literally left my job at the university to become a content creator on the platforms. So uh, uh, it's, it's expensive and it damages your career because you often don't get invited back. And I think one of the things that made that easier is that I have, I, I think, not even really outspoken political leanings, but, you know, we live in an inc extremely in unequal society. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that um, that has certain conflicts with the donor structures of museums. And there has to be a level of inequality for patronage uh, to yeah. exist. So, yeah, those become very tricky um very tricky things to navigate in the art world. And um, I probably did a lot of shit posting in my younger years that got me disinvited to a few dinners <laughs> for sure. I mean, literally got me disinvited. I, to I, some... I waited for my forties yeah. to start, start being vocally <laughs> opposed to everything and everyone. But here's, let me, let me throw mm. the, just the, the, to make this into like a, now a 4d problem mm. is I feel like the common sense politics of social democracy are extremely unpopular right now in cultural institutions. And there's yeah. almost like a bell curve of an effect where there are politics that are so extreme that they make it, they are unpopular. Most people don't like them, don't support them. Uh, and those things are 
very generously invited into the institutions. Uh, so the idea that, you know, we're, we're perpetually living in 2016 in the U.S., just forever, <laughs> forever forward. But the, the idea that people who went out and voted for Donald Trump might have been amenable and might have voted for Bernie Sanders had there been a different candidate, yeah. that idea is so dangerous to the donor class of the museums that yeah. work associated with those, what I would say are common sense popular politics, um, pose a pretty significant threat to the credibility and the elite status position of the people whose names mm. are on the donor walls. So uh, I've said this, you know, till I'm, I'm blue in the face, but uh, it, it, cannot be, uh, it cannot be repeated enough because it really has shaped the last few years of internet culture discourse in the professional art world and that there has been yeah. absolute silence on the most influential Wide, most widely viewed images in maybe the history of mankind that shaped politics and, and discourse, you know, <laughs> newspapers, documentaries, every other facet and medium of cultural production has extensive work relating to these topics. And the art world has been totally silent. So that tells you something. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Yeah, I mean, that becomes unsupportable after any length of contemplation of the art world's reaction to the election of Trump. I've never, I've never seen an industry of people who see themselves as influential be so powerless in its, not even <laughs> in its effect, but rather in its ability to formulate its position using its yes. own language. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I would be tempted to continue to think about you as an artist, but actually forgetting all of that, since you've used the term content creator, I wanted to ask you about some of the practical ways you create content. And by that, I mean, essentially the way that you enact your intervention. So apart from spending lots of time online, you've got your own Discord server, where presumably you do your own community organizing, but you also, I imagine, spend a lot of time lurking around other places that are not necessarily yours or friendly to you. But you also do a bunch of other quite visible things, like you made a couple of videos for a platform called Dis, which, which I highly recommend to listeners. You've just staged an exhibition that you told me about a couple of weeks ago. And um, you also write in, in forms other than books. You have a blog called Do Not Research, which I think you run collaboratively. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about what role these different media engagements play in your political small bracket artistic project, which, you know, whichever one it is. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, there are a few different legs to the tripod or maybe it's a octopod <laughs> now. I don't know. I'm, I'm over, we're all overemployed now. Mm. Um, so <laughs> I still think of myself as an artist, but I haven't really had the time to, to really sit down and make, you know, I used to make these big, like 12 foot tableau scenes of like just diligently, putting together a scene over like six months. And it's, I, I, I miss that, but I, I'm not doing that for a mm -hmm. while. So there is the content stream. Um, I published my syllabus to Patreon, a group of mostly young, mostly art students collected in the discord. Um, they started creating work that we published to this blog called do not research. Do not research has, let me see if I know the numbers. Um, 143 posts, 
by 110 contributors in 11 months. So uh, the volume of work associated with these topics by young art people seems to be influenced that, <laughs> that it is popular and it is relevant, but it hasn't been represented in the mainstream of art. No. Um, the exhibition that we just mounted was curated out of the Discord server in the Share Your Work channel. So 90% of it comes from that. And then there were a few other mm -hmm. pieces, odds and ends from different places. But it's it's all uh, community members, uh, certain people we recruit to publish on the blog, and then their, um, their membership to the community is uh, compensated. It's complimentary. Uh, if they're in the community, then they get reimbursed for the, the fees. So it's a, mm -hmm. you know, $5 barrier to entry, which keeps out people who aren't very interested and, and results in a very dedicated, very productive community. Uh, if you contribute to the blog, you should be a member for free. That sounds fair. Like the magazine, mm -hmm. when you write for them, they send you the issue. That's, I think that's, uh, oh, the number of times that has not happened for me. Sometimes it's very, <laughs> it's like three months later, six yeah. months later. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a few other legs to this, um, this project, but it's, um, one of the reasons I'm so, you know, aggressive on these things is because through going out onto the platforms, I really, I realized how precarious and how terrible the discourse actually was on those things, like the incentives and the clickbait and the sensationalism and just the, the amount of fucking selfies you have to do. It's just, it's really, I have become nostalgic for the old institutional structures, but now kind of, as we had mentioned before, my sense is that the institutions are not fixable. Like they, they are totally captured mm. by elite interests that have pretty steadfast. Uh, I mean, these are literally the donors to the Democratic Party. So if you want to visibly support an insurgent candidate within the Democratic Party, you're, yeah. Yeah, you're at odds. Um, okay, so I think that the move now is to exit the platforms and to rebuild new institutions. That's, that's the long arc that I'm on. And I'm trying to uh, pursue these things, you know, very uh, aggressively, to take on more than I can really accomplish with the blog and the exhibition and the content stream, because I think this is an opportunity. It's a pretty unique historical moment that we could build something long lasting and important if we play our cards right. And okay, so the ambition yeah. is pretty high here. I, I see. Tell, tell me more about the community. Like, who are these people, and and what do you think brings them all? Kind of wondering about the the role of you as this kind of charismatic leader creator and. You one of you know a whole a whole crop of of people of your generation. Um, Justin Murphy comes to mind, even though he has a very different political political set of ideas. But he's also talks about community, and I think has been very successful in in bringing a bunch of people who are intellectually and politically inclined together, also behind a technological platform. The the meaning of the word community and and what people contribute and what their understanding of the transaction is, is, is quite interesting mm. to try to try to grasp. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a new period of the internet. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's exciting. I think for us, it's, it's very easy because membership to the community is pegged to a contribution on the blog more or mm -hmm. less in that there's a private chat of all of the blog contributors. There's no way to buy your way into that chat. You have to make a cultural work, whether that's an image or an essay mm -hmm. or what have you, that has to pass the curatorial approval of myself and our two editors. That core membership is attached to your creative work. Um, but I know there's a lot of other communities that just have a very vibrant discourse yeah. and it's like tweets and it's banter and it's chatting in the discord. And we have all of those things too. But I think 
it's it's a lot of work to wrangle. It's a lot of work to to manage these things and um, the people, I mean, you can't see me on the podcast, but like, if you're not familiar, like, uh, I look like a fucking jock and a, like a shit posting jock. <laughs> and I think all of the people, or I assume that all the people who would come to the community would be like, you know, um, angry young white men like me. And it, it totally, it transformed my way of understanding myself actually in, in making the the project because the people who came to the community were many of them like much more radically left than than I am even, mm-hmm. um, and many of them queer, many of them of the marginalized identity groups that should benefit from the elite, you know, interests of the institutions, but they work jobs that are very precarious, and so they're they're you know painting with broad strokes here. Mm-hmm. They don't benefit from the elite identity politics that has been so predominant in the media class and in cultural institutions. So they're creatives themselves. They're really talented. They're making work in a field that is unsupported by the institutions that they should be benefiting from. And so all of those things combine to um, produce a very unique type of community. So we have People from, you know, mostly moderate to radical left politics. And then we have a few just like reactionary trolls in the discord, which are now like, it's like, oh, Juan is posting, he's shit posting in the memes channel again. And it's like really hilarious and charming. That's a good one. Um, it's, it's a pretty unique space on the internet, you know. How many, how many people do you gather in those kind of spaces? Like just what are the nuts and bolts of this, this operation? Just, just yeah, literally for, for people who've never encountered this, yeah, I think yeah. this would be interesting to consider. So let's say there's, well, the the number of people who contribute to the blog is 110. The Discord mm-hmm. is probably 1,500 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then there are certain content creators who are members of the community who reach audiences in the millions. Uh, and then there's, say, for example, a piece that I wrote in The Guardian that was the like uh, on top of the opinion page for a day and a half. That is in the millions. There's okay. There's a real funnel effect to the messaging that is concentrated in a core community and then has this amphitheater effect. So yeah, the Discord itself, 1500. Interesting. And the question of of the left's complete loss of infrastructure, these are models that are worth exploring. And, and at the very least, which is one of the things that you point to, these are mechanisms, these are ways of building communities and political support that have been successful for, for the opposition. They've been pretty damn successful for, for the mm. right and various, various factions of the extreme rights. Mm. Going back to, to the blog, to do not research, well, I read one of your recent texts called How to Plant a Meme, which I think would be quite an interesting case study of oh boy. What, what it is that one can actually do in these spaces. And and then it's an interesting way to try to visualize the, the actual process of what it is that, that, that you're trying to achieve and by the, by the means you're doing it and, and also its limitations and, and its kind of horizons. Just as a piece of background, because I don't know when this is going to be published, but um, it's been an exciting two weeks on the internet. Mm. Uh, there is, but I've never seen nothing I've ever written or published has activated that dedicated of an audience, um, mm. and it just keeps like it's like waves. Just like people come in with insane messages and takes and comments and. Um, yeah, I've done I've done a few talks and and things that'll be uh, coming out about that essay uh, soon. So let me give you the the short version of it. 
Um, and then, because otherwise I could just tell the story for infinite amount of time. It's, it's a very, it's a long story. So I published Politogram in the Post Left in October of 2018. After publishing that, I then started an anonymous uh, uh, meme project spread out across a few platforms. I continued that for about 18 months. When I finished that project, I then became a content creator. Eight months into being a content creator, mm-hmm. I told the story. <laughs> the story is on a podcast. Uh, in 2020, in 2022, I transcribed that podcast oh. and published it as an essay. And so now people are going back, I don't know, like three years or so to this project I did, which is now, you know, going soft viral and activating all of these like fanatically dedicated meme communities and discords. Mm. Um, but essentially there is the, there's this unanswered question of you see something that you think is a, a, a net social ill, you see something that you're opposed to, do you just stand on the sidelines? Do you do something about it? Or what's, yeah. what's the course of action? You know, at the end of the book, at Politogram the Post Left and the print version only, there is a level of uh, nihilist terrorism and mm-hmm. advocating violence against unarmed apolitical civilians, and it's just completely indefensible. It's, it's, I have to I have to define that. So when we talk about de-radicalization, we're talking about people into extremist politics, yeah. like you know, um, instructions for how to make improvised explosive devices, distributing the writings of active terrorist groups. Uh, in these Discord channels in 2018. So when I talk about de-radicalizing, uh, it's something that is, you know, uh, uh, in need of it. So um, the project, which was an experiment that I didn't know if it would work, was to try and wield influence in these spaces by slowly introducing more positive references in a gradation, what I called in the essay a reference chain that you could get mm-hmm. them into from Ted Kaczynski, you could get them into Nick Land. If you could get them into Nick <laughs> Land, then you could get them into Jill's Deleuze and then into Sadie Plant, and then you could get to the CCRU, and you could get into Mark Fisher, who is, you know, yeah. one of my my favorites. But uh, that process of just acculturating people to ideas was essentially the funnel analogy that we've been trying to map of like how people get into one thing, and then a few years later, you know, A to B to C to D, and then at, at X, you're like, well, now I'm into some insane niche radical political ideology. How did I even get here? I think there are ways to sculpt those spaces and use them intentionally. And this project is a was a test deployment of, of that. So um, the essay that it's kind of a lot of uh, meme techniques of like practical ways of putting images together with mm-hmm. artifacts and, and strategies like that. But it's also the general concept of creating a reference chain and incrementally in- introducing people to ideas over time. What then really transforms the project is that I tell this story eight months into the podcast stream, and then the community in the Discord produces hundreds upon hundreds of capitalist realism memes, just uh, to the extent that uh, Mike Watson wrote, uh, well, he titled his book after it. Indeed, I I interviewed Mike only a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. Two other books, uh, one of which has the same name, that show all of those memes, and it's—I mean—they're—they're they're two to three hundred pages each, and I've folders and folders of them. Um, so, what happened, you know, down down the line is that seeding that that meme, they're just capitalist realism, kind of pasting the logo over things, photoshopping mm-hmm. it into different scenes. Uh, it really 
it catches on and people who are not who are not aware that this is like a project to force meme something they just yeah. start repeating it themselves because it's you know it's a very popular book it's very relevant um and we're just creating like the visual language to propel that on a visual platform like instagram um yeah so <laughs> i took <laughs> everything that i do now as we're telling mm-hmm. the story is this trickle of work over a long period of time because that's what the content schedule is. If I did a yearly exhibition, it would all be cohesive and one thing at a time, but everything I do is spread out over months and and years and it's this evolving story. That's just, I guess, the nature of the mediums that we work in now. Um, Yeah, so the the essay that was published, I wanna say, might've been a month ago now, it it could have been a while. Um, That is more or less a direct transcript of what I read on the podcast in 2020 (laughs) and people are losing their minds over it. They're totally melting down. So it's, it's been interesting. Hmm. Well, I'm clearly not part of these communities enough to have, to have taken it quite like that. I read it as a very sober kind of manual for, you know, how to, (laughs) how, how to, how to deal with, you know, with the unknown, how to try to influence people using quite modest means. Modest means, modest means. That's what I. Um, that's what I thought. Yeah. If I was a better journalist, I would have already interrupted you and, and asked you the gotcha question. Did you also publish a book called "The Meaning of Mark Fisher"? Oh no, there's um, a content creator called Academic Fraud mm. who did. Um, who uh, I think, if I can remember back to when it started, it was trying to um, to uh, preempt the SEO to like ride on top of the. <laughs> The other book? That's just something that, that Mike, Mike Watson happened to, to remark on. And, and I, I guess from, from a perspective of, of someone like him, that was a bizarre thing to experience. But I, I imagine it's, it's testament to the fact that all these forces that you enter, you, you don't necessarily control to, 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 to any, any, any great degree. This is possibly why academia can't really touch quite a lot of these it's total anarchism. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. People, uh, academic fraud is, I mean, a, a great account that does a lot of really brilliant projects, but there's people who are, you know, in the community have their own autonomous practice. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of like, uh, trying to ride the chaos and direct it when you can, but mm. yeah. Okay. What's, what's your responsibility as, as this, this de facto leader, <laughs> the de facto charismatic leader and Uh, I think it's primarily at this point, it's to try and manage the scarce resources and to try and raise money and to try and facilitate, um, you know, I'm like literally installing people's work on the wall. Like I'm drilling Mm -hmm. into brick and like hanging their art, um, coordinating institutional projects. We're printing out a year of the blog of do not research. And we're going to launch that at the new museum. in I think three weeks from now, so Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm organizing that. We're going to do a screening series of uh, several films by contributors to the blog in July. So I'm, I'm, it really is like, I guess I'm just trying to recreate the same like pathways to a creative life that have been disappearing in American society. Like everything, we yeah. don't even have a space to meet. We have to meet in a Zoom room. We don't have like a room to meet for a reading group. So I feel like my job now has been to like manage uh, facilitate opportunities to give visibility and, um, to like enshrine these works in an institutional context and argue for like why showing certain memes and conversations Mm. are important. And yeah, I really feel like, I don't know, I wasn't a lecturer or a writer before this. I was just a guy in the studio, you know, that's how I thought my (laughs) practice would be. But now I'm, I'm some type of a, I don't know, I guess I was a teacher. So it's, it's not that surprising. 
Well, we, we all get to join the PMC one way or another. Sorry, Kishore. <laughs> <laughs> um, how does it all end? You, you end um, the book by, by talking about the inevitability of the black pill, the mm. nihilism that draws pretty much every, every participant of any, any political or politicizable online community. Where, where do you see salvation to, through what you're doing? Mm, mm. Well, there's, so the, there's the ending to the book in 2018, and then there's a, an ending in the 2021 version. In 2018, I very much felt like the end point was the black pill in that there was not much further that you could, you could radicalize, you know. Um, but in the time following its publication, I have seen a lot of people just age out of it. And they mm. were part of really extreme groups before. And then, you know what? They go to college and they uh, they learn that it's actually fun to drink and hang out with your friends or you get a <laughs> girlfriend or just other things. Like you get a job. There are things that like take up your time that when you're a depressed teenager, um, you know, it's just it's at a level of extremism that I don't think our generations had easy access to, you know. Mm. So, so that, that part of it is, is shocking. Um, I think, uh, it's, it's a gradation as well. I know people who depoliticized and then got into health food, you know, and now they spend a lot of time like uh. eating raw beef and, and whatever. So, um, there are various routes. Some people get organized, some people start families. It's, I've, I've followed many stories in the last few years. I think how it ends for us, for the community side of the project is that, I don't know. Hopefully, um, I've seen so much of internet culture disappear in the last 10 years that I've been doing this. Uh, the only things that really remain durable is if you have some type of uh, institutional context to like mm. gather the, the interest and archive itself and, and whatever. So I, I feel like that's the path that we're trying to embark on and hopefully we're successful, but, um, there's, there's a lot to be determined between now and then. So fingers crossed. Well, good luck. I think what you're doing is, is kind of part of any cultural evolution. I would imagine historically every subcultural group has a feeling that it's sort of outside mm. outside the main purview of academia, of history. But what you seem to be doing seems to be catching on. For all our listeners who didn't understand half of the terminology, I apologize. I'm going to put a bunch of links to Josh's patron, his Instagram, his essays and a bunch of other things do click. <laughs> I don't have an ending. <laughs> I don't have an ending. There, that's good. That's good. It means we're, we're growing onward and upward. Yeah. You've confused, you've confused me. I've read your books. I've watched your videos. You've confused me enough to not know how to assign this. So thank you for joining me, Joshua. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been great. Politogram and the post left as well as 20 questions are available on Amazon. I'll end this episode by playing the audio track of The Slow Red Pill, which is a video work made by Joshua in collaboration with Jacob Herbert Goodman for the online educational information platform DIS. This film looks at the ways in which the far right can intermingle and exchange information with run-of-the-mill conservatism in online platforms. This process, I think, is equivalent to the things we discuss in the interview, except, of course, it points in the opposite political direction. Do keep listening, but I'll sign off now. I'm Pierre Dalance, and here was my chapeau. A 
once followed a group of far-right teenagers on Instagram who devoted much of their time to radicalizing people. The strategy was simple. They'd set up meme pages that, on the surface, appeared to be run-of-the-mill Republican MAGA-type accounts. The bio might read, free speech, debate welcome, make America great. By all outward appearances, it would look like a regular conservative meme page. This account would repost high-performing content from big Republican pages, like DC Drano, the typical liberal, etc. And use the popularity of these images to accumulate a following of Fox, Breitbart, and Turning Point USA type viewers. About once a week, the account would unexpectedly post extreme content. While regular posts would feature familiar conservative tropes like having an iPhone means you can't criticize capitalism, and Venezuela proves that socialism doesn't work, extreme posts would contain racist caricatures and anti-capitalist messaging in favor of white identity. This type of extreme racist post was frequently met with pushback from the community. Common responses included, people should be treated as individuals, not as part of a group, and the Democrats are the ones who want to divide us up by race. Implicit or explicit gestures of anti-Semitism were strongly protested by evangelical Christians. Red pill posts would rarely stay up long. In most cases, they were only intended to appear on one's Instagram feed and to vanish shortly after. The account would then resume posting popular content, wait another week, and try it again. This process would continue for months, maybe a year. By posting mainstream conservative content most of the time, these extreme right groups were able to build up an audience numbering in the range of 30 to 40,000, which they could then incrementally expose to radical content. Towards the end of the account's lifespan, the admins would dial up the ratio of radical content dramatically. Posts would frame shifting demographics as a great replacement, orchestrated by nefarious transnational elites, or describe how climate change would soon force hard decisions about the distribution of scarce resources in the global north. Ultimately, they would put forward that, against the scale of the coming crisis, civil unrest and violence were not only permissible, but necessary. At this point, the pages would be banned rather quickly. A large follower count vastly increases the likelihood of reports. But in the time of building up that following, they would have successfully moved a large portion of their audience significantly further towards the right. This was always the true objective. Getting banned was an acceptable and anticipated casualty. The following week, they would make a new account and start over. The common reaction among many of today's liberals and centrists to this growing proliferation of far-right material online is to call for greater action from Silicon Valley giants. But attempts to combat this type of content are always necessarily on the back foot. In recent years, debates over moderation and algorithmic recommendation have worked to obscure the true source of radicalization, an atomized and precarious society in which increasing numbers of people are unable to access the benefits of the mainstream and, as a result, now move to the political fringes. There is no content moderation solution for a political problem. Returning from a recent account ban, one of the main admins wrote, I'm happy to be back, guys. Remember, as long as I remain on this earth, I will never stop shitposting for you lads. I'm on my 18th account. Perhaps it is time to accept that this kind of political mobilization is here to stay. In the past, young people were politicized through radical movements and underground subcultural spaces. But today, platforms have caused all countercultural scenes to sublimate and recollect online. Meme pages, influencers, and online groups aren't going anywhere. 
There is nothing implicitly right-wing about the slow red pill strategy. Swapping normie meme accounts into political content is an effective tactic. Anyone can use it. But instead of extreme content, one might choose to show declining rates of union membership, the divergent trend lines of productivity and wages, or the unprecedented upward drift of wealth in the past 40 years. As the center is vacated by disillusioned masses, whether they look to the left or the right for alternatives is largely up to us.